You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history and a reputation among my friends as the person you send history stuff to when it comes across your newsfeed. Um, I have a feeling that is the same for a lot of you who are listening. This is Art Bite 2 of 2 coming at you this month, if you are listening in real time, of course, um, if you're listening to the back catalog or out of order. Um, these episodes really do make sense as a pairing because we are delving once again into Tudor portraiture, Tudor history, um, and it's really going to be an episode connected to the last one in a lot of ways. So I don't necessarily need to tell you, go back and listen to the previous art bite about Anne of Cleves um, and her house houses, um, but it, it, this is a good companion piece. So you could go listen to that one right after this one if you haven't heard it yet or, or do what I just said I wasn't going to suggest doing and listen to it first because we're going to be hitting some of the same notes here. We're going to visit in on some of the same characters, uh, if that makes sense. I hope it does. It probably does. If you're new to the show and this is your first time listening, it probably makes zero sense and that's okay. Normally the premise on Art of History is we take a look at a work of art that can tell us a story about the past. These Art Bite episodes are a little shorter, a little more informal than those normal ones. Typically I do have like an outline that I stick very closely to. The Art Bites are more casual. Um, I am drinking a cup of tea. Just we're relaxing, we're having a nice time. I did have a comment come through on my TikTok today, um, which is at Matta of Fact, my last name, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. Someone commented they had just caught up on a lot of episodes and they said it felt like we were having a cup of tea together. So I've decided we are going to make that a regular thing and I will let you know when I'm drinking a cup of tea what I'm, what I'm partaking in. So maybe you can join in. Um, it'll be nice and cozy that way. I like this for us a lot, actually. So today I am enjoying a nice hot cup of almond sugar cookie tea. Um, it's a black tea from the Rosemary House, which is a tea house that is local to me. I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They are based in Mechanicsburg. They're just across the river from me. Um, just a lovely spot and they make delicious homebrewed loose leaf teas. Um, cannot recommend enough. So I'm having that this evening with a dash of oat milk. When you hop over to the Instagram to take a look at the images we're going to discuss today and um, leave me a comment about what you enjoyed about the episode, be sure to let me know if you were drinking a cup of tea along with me and, and what you were enjoying. Shout out to my partner who I'm sure when he listens to this will text me saying, I didn't drink a cup of tea because he does not like tea. He says it makes his throat scratchy. Um, and I'm here wondering, is he maybe allergic? Because I've never heard that before. It's literally, the tea is too spicy. Anyway. <laughs> 
that's enough chit chat out of me because we are here to discuss our final piece of Tudor art history news to come out this spring summer season. Um, and it's a good one. I'm kind of glad that I saved this for last because I do know a little bit more about the piece now than I did when the news first broke as research has been happening as the historians involved have been making appearances and chatting about it a little bit more. And I say this is like a big discovery and exciting discovery because it has resulted in what we now know to be the only object from any Tudor portrait to have survived to this day. So today we are talking about the Book of Hours belonging to one Thomas Cromwell. Um, you may know him if you've watched the show The Tudors. <laughs> um, he's Henry VIII's right-hand man for, for the bulk of like, I don't know, the middle period of his reign. Um, and his personal item, the Book of Hours, dated to 1527, was recently, quote unquote, discovered by British historians. But this book, I hesitate to say discovered, but it is still a discovery. Um, the book wasn't lost. It was hiding in plain sight for 500 years. And that's what makes this discovery so remarkable and like fun. And just it, it itches a part of my brain that loves news like this. So let's back up a little bit. What was a book of hours? If you are not, I mean, really, if you're not Catholic or like heavy into Christianity, you may not know. Um, the book of hours is a prayer book designed to guide Christian people through prayers that were to be said at, maybe you can guess, certain hours of each day. Members of the clergy and other people living like a formal religious life, um, they had a strict set of prayers to follow throughout the day. But books of hours were for the lay people, the common people. They were a little bit more laid back. They were an object of private devotion. And for the wealthy, they could also be luxury items. Um, we're going to talk a bit more about bookbinding and illuminations in our next episode. There's a little uh, hint for you. Um, but books, books were not cheap <laughs> in the Renaissance. And books of hours were sometimes illuminated or illustrated just like really decadently and bound in luxury materials, leather or cloth, or even um, in the case of Thomas Cromwell's in precious stones and metals. Now, Cromwell's Book of Hours, like I said, it was hiding in plain sight. It features pretty prominently as like a prop in a portrait done of Henry VIII's advisor by the court painter Hans Holbein the Younger. And I have, of course, that image over on the Instagram at Art of History Podcast for you. Um, if you're Googling it, you can Google Portrait of Thomas Cromwell, Earl of Essex. It dates from 1532 or 33, and that date is going to be important as we get into Thomas Cromwell's um, like biographical information here. <laughs> Interestingly, before we dive into that, I do want to note that this is not the only copy of the book to have made its way to England, or even to Henry's inner circle at court. Copies of this particular book of ours um, were also owned by Henry VIII's wives, yes, plural, <laughs> wives, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. That connection was initially made by a woman who is kind of at the center of this discovery. Her name is Kate McCaffrey, and she is the assistant curator at Hever Castle, which is Anne Boleyn's childhood home in Kent. Um, in 2021, she made the link that both Anne Boleyn and her predecessor, Catherine of Aragon, had copies of the same prayer book. Both copies were printed in Paris in the year 1527, which is a notable year in Henry VIII's timeline and that of his wives. 
Anne Boleyn by then had accepted a secret marriage proposal from Henry, and his annulment to Catherine of Aragon was beginning to be set in motion, although, you know, it would take a few more years for everything to kind of culminate there. But it's sort of poetic now to think that both women either purchased or were given such uh, the the illuminations um, inside these books, they're so sumptuous. And the fact that both women owned them in that pivotal year and probably used them to pray like for very different outcomes in their lives. It's that's just again, it scratches an itch in my brain and I love it. I should also take this time to note, as I do, I think every time we talk about the Tudors, um, that this is not going to be like a definitive introduction to them. So if you know no absolutely nothing about Henry VIII or any of his wives, um, you have two options. You can go to Wikipedia or you can kind of listen to my back catalog where I've talked about them um, in some detail. It's not going to be like a, a timeline of their of their history, but you'll get the gist. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for like your introduction, this is not the place to do it. I'm assuming that you have some base knowledge of who Henry was, who Catherine of Aragon was, who Anne Boleyn was, and what was, you know, going on there. Although we will touch on some of it as we go. But yeah, at this time, as she used her Book of Hours, Catherine of Aragon was probably praying for the king to have a change of heart and return to her because she was his true wife. Anne Boleyn was probably using it to pray for, I don't know, some deliverance out of this trial that had been placed upon her and I mean, in whatever direction that was going to go because historians differ on how badly she wanted to be married to the king. We'll just leave that there. Anne's copy of the book, um, which I do actually have a picture of on the Instagram for your reference, um, her copy bears an inscription on the bottom edge of one of the pages that reads, Remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. And she has signed it, and I think that's a beautiful detail. Now, back in 2021, another of Anne Boleyn's prayer books um, in her possession, so not the same printing, but like another one she owned, um, also made headlines when, again, Kate McCaffrey made a discovery. She identified quote-unquote secret inscriptions on one of the pages. Legend has it that on her way to her execution, Anne carried a prayer book with her, which she handed off to a lady-in-waiting just before the sword took her head off. Um, now, nearly five centuries later, McCaffrey analyzed what was said to be that book, with um, ultraviolet light because she had seen some like kind of imperceptible markings on a page. She wanted to know if maybe there was something more there. She used UV light and photo editing software and she discovered that there were a list of names. There were three family names, Gage, West, and Shirley inscribed around a fourth name, Guildford, on one of the pages. A little bit of research revealed that these could have been all family names of women who were present in the life of Elizabeth I, Anne Boleyn's daughter. So McCaffrey has posited that the inscriptions on the book bear the names of women who may have passed it along at great personal risk so that the book could be preserved for Elizabeth as like a memento from her mother. So that in and of itself is like an amazing discovery. I remember hearing about that um, at the time and just... Oh my gosh, it's so cool. I do recommend if you're looking to hear more things like this in, a, in an audio format, um, historian Susanna Lipscomb has a podcast. It's called Not Just the Tudors. And I believe she did an interview with um, McCaffrey when that discovery came out. Um, that was really good. So I'm sure she has one on Thomas Cromwell's Book of Hours as well. Um, <laughs> you could go listen to that after this one. But yeah, there's a little recommendation for you. 
Now, to return our attention to the matter at hand, um, so those two books of ours we now know were not the only ones from this printer in Paris to have made their way to Henry VIII's court. McCaffrey later discovered that a third copy of what we call the 1527 Book of Hours was residing at the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge, which had received it as a book donation in August 1660. <laughs> it had been hiding in the stacks ever since then. The donation was made by a woman named Anne Sadler, who was a book collector and a patroness, as well as, and more importantly for this story, she was the wife of the grandson of one of Thomas Cromwell's associates, colleagues, I guess you could say, um, a man named Sir Ralph Sadler. Now, it seems that when McCaffrey made this discovery, a team of experts was assembled, which included the Tudor historian Tracy Borman, who reviewed evidence which led them to believe that this was the very book residing inside a portrait by Hans Holbein the Younger, and that it belonged to Thomas Cromwell. So they've now linked three different prayer books, all owned by like very notable people within Henry VIII's inner circle. Out of the three volumes, though, Cromwell's is notable for its luxurious binding. It is bound with silver gilt metalwork and inset with jewels, garnets to be exact. Um, if you're interested in seeing it, it will be on display at Hever Castle until uh, November 10th. So if you're in the UK, um, go see it. I think they do have it next to Anne Boleyn's copy there, which is really, really cool. Let's now turn our attention to not only the portrait of Thomas Cromwell, but also the story behind the portrait. Who was this guy? So the picture that the Book of Hours is featured in was painted while Cromwell was on the rise at Henry VIII's court, circa 1532-1533. He would have been around 48 years old at that time. Cromwell is known for serving as chief minister to Henry VIII um, and being inside his inner circle from 1532 to 1540. So again, right around the time that this portrait was painted. But he came from pretty humble beginnings. He began life actually as a blacksmith's son. Um, we don't know for sure, but Historic Royal Palaces lists the likeliest date for his birth as 1485. Um, which they say, quote, would be appropriate given that it was the year the Tudors seized the throne. So we're always looking for these patterns and this sense of like poetry within, within these storylines. Um, Cromwell's hometown, Putney, was a small village by the Thames. It was west of the city of London. We think that he was the youngest of his parents' three children. His parents were Walter Cromwell and his wife, Catherine Meverell. Um, he was also the only boy in that family. His father was a, quote, enterprising man with a number of different professions, what else is new, <laughs> including blacksmith and brewer. He owned a hostelry called The Anchor. I think that's like a bar or like a tavern or like tavern in combination. <laughs> I could Google, but where's the fun in that? Um, this was situated close to their home at the top of Brewhouse Lane. So you can kind of imagine the environment that this kid grew up in. Now, despite being a successful businessman, Thomas's father was often in trouble with the law. He was fined by the courts no less than 48 times for, water for watering down the beer that he sold in his establishment. Um, he was also convicted on a more serious charge in 1477. Um, he was found guilty of assault. So that's not great. Um, 
Thomas did later say that he was a, quote, ruffian in his young days, but he was clearly, like, eager to escape that environment, um, that family home, maybe even. He did travel abroad in 1503 when he would have been around 18 years old. He served for a time as a mercenary in the French army. Um, I don't know how Henry VIII would have felt about that later because he and the French king were, like, famously rivals. Um, after that, Thomas took employment in the home of a wealthy Florentine merchant. So there, living in Florence, he became exposed to art and culture, which is something that would have eventually set him apart from the other advisors on Henry VIII's council. At the time, the Florentine government was being heavily influenced by Machiavelli, and the home that Cromwell lived in was actually visited by artists the likes of Michelangelo. Like, that's, that's the peak of culture that we're talking about here. In 1512, Cromwell returned to England. Um, He used the contacts that he had made abroad to start work as a merchant. But again, like most men of this time, like through the colonial era, it seems, he was not going to just have one job. That's pretty lame. He also began practicing the law. So again, something he may have picked up in Florence. Um, And this would prove like a fateful decision. This is where all of his future uh, good and bad luck hinges off of. In 1514, he married a woman named Elizabeth Wicks, um, who was a wealthy widow whose father had served Henry VII. They had at least three children, two girls, Alice, called Anne for some reason, um, Grace, and then a boy named Gregory. Tragically, both his wife and his two daughters died during the sweating sickness outbreak in 1528-29, He never remarried and, quote, instead focused all of his affection upon his surviving child, Gregory. And that's a relationship that actually is shown and, like, explored a little bit in the Tudors in, like, kind of a heart-wrenching way, if I'm remembering correctly. You don't often think of Thomas Cromwell as, like, a guy deserving or, like, showing any sympathy in his life, but I think in his family relationships, like, that that was a place where he was a human, at least. (laughs) By this time, although he was sad his wife and daughters had died, Cromwell was also one of the most successful businessmen in London. He had also scored a connection that would help him soar to his position of influence at court, one Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. He was, at this time, King Henry VIII's chief minister, and he appointed Cromwell as legal counsel in 1519. Cromwell was becoming one of his most trusted servants by the time that um, his family members, you know, bit the dust. Like Cromwell, Wolsey was of lowly birth. He was the son of a butcher, so I'm sure they were able to bond over that. Um, yet he had he had risen to become literally the most powerful man in England after the king. And Henry, like, couldn't do a lot without him. <laughs> he, like, really relied on Wolsey. So Wolsey brings Cromwell into his inner circle. He mainly employs him on legal business. Um, He, in kind of an episode of foreshadowing at this point, asked him to execute, not execute, execute, but like carry out the dissolution of some small religious houses around the country in order to pay for Wolsey's new college at Oxford. This is before the official dissolution of the monasteries that Henry VIII institutes. And we talked about that in the last art bite. But now maybe you know why Henry thought that Cromwell was the guy for the job. He literally had experience dissolving monasteries when that became a matter of public policy. Now, Wolsey did suffer one of those pesky falls from grace um, when he failed to secure the annulment of the king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. 
It was at this time that Wolsey gifted Henry his, like, literally newly built paint still wet on the Walls Palace Hampton Court to Henry, um, maybe in an attempt to win his favor back. Probably. That was probably the reason. Henry, for all that we know, uh, said, thank you very much, my very beloved loyal servant, and then went ahead and just, like, wrote Wolsey out <laughs> of all of his positions anyway. Um, much of Wolsey's entourage turned their backs on him as he was falling out of favor with the king. But Cromwell actually stood by the cardinal, even after he was, like, officially removed from his positions. Thomas even went to court to petition the king directly to pardon Wolsey, um, where Henry was instead impressed by Cromwell's loyalty and his ability. So, I don't know, that's an awkward situation, is it? Isn't that? What do you, what do, you do if you're Thomas? Um, you're there to plead for your boss's, I mean, life, really, as it would turn out. Um, but instead, the guy you're, like, petitioning says, mm, I like you, you come work for me now, forget that guy. What do you do? Well, if you're Cromwell, you agree, and you are brought on to exercise your legal talents in the king's so-called great matter. That is what Henry called, uh, kind of, he thought he was being coy, I'm sure, but that's what he called his quest for an annulment so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Um, so he, Cromwell started working on this case and impressed not only Henry, but actually got on Anne Boleyn's good side at this time. Um, she had been very against Cardinal Wolsey, obviously, as a Catholic cardinal. Um, so Cromwell and Anne became allies, and he was described as the, quote, most secret and dear counselor unto the king and the man who enjoys most credit with the king. Just to quickly tie a bow on, like, what happened to Cardinal Wolsey, um, Anne Boleyn was, like, convinced that he was working against her. Um, he was, like, an emissary between the Pope and the English court. The Pope decided that the official, like, annulment court case should be heard in Rome, not in England. That made Henry and Anne very angry, and they took their anger out on Wolsey. So he was stripped of his position and his property, including... Hampton Court Palace, like, definitively now belonged to Henry. Um, but that wasn't enough for Henry's allies, who went ahead and accused him of treason. Now, unlike many people who got that accusation for pissing off Henry VIII, um, he actually never faced, like, the true extent of Henry's wrath. He was not beheaded, he was not imprisoned, any of that. He was ordered to return to London, um, where he probably would have been arrested. Um, but he fell ill on the journey and died in November 1530. Um, his last words were apparently, quote, I see the matter against me how it is framed, but if I had served God as diligently as I have done the king, he would not have given me over in my gray hairs. I think there is some discussion about whether or not Wolsey was poisoned or murdered, or if he actually, like, did die um, of an illness or some kind of health event. He was about 57 at that time. Um, so we'll never know. But he's out of the picture. <laughs> and now the position of chief guy in charge, BFF of Henry VIII, is open. In April 1532, Henry awarded Cromwell with his first formal office, that of Master of the Jewels, so like the crown jewels. This required regular visits to the jewel house at the Tower of London, which, you know, is still where they're housed today because the British love continuity. 
Many more positions, promotions would follow for Thomas Cromwell, including the job titles of Vice Regent, Lord Chancellor, and Lord Lord High Chamberlain. Um, all of these brought him really, really high pay grades, um, as well as immense power. Um, on the side, his private businesses were continuing to do very well. So it's been estimated by, that by the mid-1530s, his annual income was around £12,000, which is just insane for this time. That's equivalent to about 3.5 million pounds in today's money. Um, in dollars, oh, I don't have the conversion memorized. One moment. That's about 4.5 million US dollars today. For like, what are you going to do with that money in the Tudor age? What are you going to do with that? Like, just sit on it, right? Buy property? Buy fur? I don't know. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Maybe one of the things you would do with that amount of money is commission portraits of yourself because it was almost certainly to celebrate his first big appointment as Master of the Jewels that Cromwell commissioned Hans Holbein, who was the most celebrated artist of the age at Henry's court, um, to paint his picture. And again, remember, this is circa 1532-1533, so like probably to announce his new job is the reason that he got this portrait painting. Um, the result is, quote, one of the most extraordinarily revealing portraits of the Tudor age. Far from flattering the sitter, it offers a brutally honest appraisal of a portly middle-aged man who is hard at work in his study. So Cromwell wasn't looking to be, like, personally flattered, but he was looking to show off different aspects of himself, like, outside of his appearance. In the portrait, Cromwell is presented as, quote, sour and somewhat stiff. His eyes kind of seem to be narrowing as he looks out the side of the panel. He's gripping a court paper very tightly in his hand, and he's sort of hunched. He's like leaning back a bit and is painted like just off center. So it's not, even though he is stiff, the portrait itself is not very formal. It's not very formulaic. Um... We've got this table placed between us, the viewer, and Cromwell, and he's like leaning on it. He's resting his forearm upon it. There's also a lot of fabric going on here, and this is our first kind of clue that he's showing off, and in this case, showing off his wealth. Fabric um, and textiles are one of the luxury items in the Tudor court. Um, I forget at this time if it, they had been put in place, but Henry did like institute laws they were called sumptuary laws about who could wear what fabrics so acquiring textiles of these different textures and colors like that is a display of wealth as well 
Cromwell is not dressed ostentatiously at first glance. He's wearing a black fur-lined overcoat and a matching black hat. These are austere items, but they are also still luxury items. Make no mistake, those furs would have been very expensive. He's sitting in front of this teal wall hanging. It kind of looks like um, damask, like that double textured type of uh, textile. Um, to his right side is a red, either a patterned stool or like a side table that's covered in a cloth. That's very bright and bold. And in front of him, the table is covered with a green cloth. On top of that cloth is a kind of messy array of items. So it really does look like we've walked into the study of the master of the jewels and we've interrupted him in the middle of his work. The items on the table include a quill, scissors, a leather bag, and what was previously identified as, quote, a devotional book. We now know this specifically to be the 1527 Book of Hours. I'm going to put a pin in that for now because we need to cover a little bit more of Thomas Cromwell's story so you can kind of get the full context of not even what the Book of Hours might symbolize, but rather what we as historians, like looking back on this age, might project onto it. Because there's two things that could be going on here, and I think you need to have Cromwell's like full story in order to see them both clearly. So we're going to pick up in 1533. Henry marries Anne Boleyn in secret in January. At that time, she is likely pregnant with the baby that would become Elizabeth I. Um, it's not till May 1533, however, that Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon is finally annulled, so that's awkward. Um, but after it is annulled, Anne Boleyn is formally crowned queen. That happens in June 1533. The rest here is kind of well-covered territory, right? He's Henry has failed to secure the Pope's permission for the annulment, so he breaks with the church in Rome and establishes the separate Church of England, over which he is the supreme leader, supreme head. <laughs> Cromwell is overseeing all of the religious reforms that, thank you, that take place hereafter. That includes the dissolution of the monasteries, which if you don't know what that is, go listen to my Anne of Cleves art bite directly before this one. We go over it in that episode. Um, but for now, you need to know the destruction of great Catholic religious houses bring Henry and his favorites enormous wealth. But all of the successes that Henry had when he resolved his quote-unquote great matter did not come without also gaining enormous and widespread opposition across England. He also becomes very displeased that Anne Boleyn is not kind of like holding up her end of the bargain and producing a son for him. Um, in 1536, Henry instructed Cromwell to get him out of her marriage to her, that he had literally moved mountains to make happen just a few years earlier, but like, we won't go into that right now. So it was Cromwell who built up the legal strategy um, where they came up with this case of adultery against Anne Boleyn. That was based on like court rumors and gossip, but it still implicated no fewer than five men, including her own brother, George. So that's icky. She was arrested on May 2nd, 1536, and taken to the Tower of London, where she was tried and found guilty um, just over two weeks later. Cromwell was one of the witnesses who gathered to see her be beheaded on May 19th. 
So he's now witnessed firsthand what happens when you fall out of favor with Henry, first from Catherine of Aragon, then from Cardinal Wolsey, now from Anne Boleyn. So he has moved quickly at this point to ally himself with the new up-and-coming faction at court, um, which was, of course, the Seymour family. Henry VIII became betrothed to Jane Seymour the day after Anne's execution, and Cromwell arranged a marriage between Jane's sister Elizabeth and his own son Gregory, which makes him practically like a royal in-law. I was trying to do like the maneuvering in my head with a family tree, like to see, okay, in an analogy where maybe we're talking about William, Henry VIII is like Prince William, and he's married now to Kate Middleton. So like Cromwell would be marrying his son to the Queen's sister so like pippa middleton's husband would be cromwell's son so like cromwell would be the husband of james matthews i think his name is so like royal adjacent they probably see each other at easter and at christmas and like royal ascot things like that and of course in the tudor times you would be seeing each other much more regularly because court was kind of like this centralized thing so yeah royal in-law we can we can leave it there but unfortunately, it was all downhill from there for Cromwell. Um, for one thing, the people across England who protested the Protestant Reformation that was like sweeping the nation, they directed their anger at Thomas Cromwell because you can't you can't direct your anger at the king directly. Who can you target? The king's enforcer, the guy carrying out his orders. So as people across the country are getting like enraged by Cromwell carrying out the king's orders, the king, instead of standing by his man, um, begins to distance himself from Cromwell, which is never a good sign. He even makes his frustrations publicly known. Um, on one occasion in 1538, a courtier observed that Cromwell was, quote, well pommeled about the head and shake it up, shaken up as it were a dog. So Henry is beating Cromwell like a dog gross. Um, so this is why by 1539, Cromwell is apparently so desperate to earn himself some favor with the king again, that he engineers Henry's marriage to Anne of Cleves. <laughs> of course, we all know how that turned out. Again, see last week's or yeah, last week's Art Bite episode, um, where we kind of cover like the beginning of the end to the end for Cromwell in great detail. Now the Anne of Cleves mess is not the primary reason that Cromwell is pushed out of Henry's inner circle. In fact, Henry was showing signs of like being willing to forgive and forget. That's how much he liked Cromwell. He even created him the Earl of Essex in April 1540. But Cromwell did have enemies at court, you know, as you do. <laughs> Chief among them is the Duke of Norfolk, who is the uncle of Anne Boleyn and of um, his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Um, <laughs> These, this faction, kind of led by the Duke of Norfolk, becomes determined to get rid of Cromwell, who they see as a, quote, lowborn upstart for good. So rumors and gossip, they've worked before to get rid of, you know, Anne Boleyn, Cardinal Wolsey. So they've started, once again, what they call a whisper campaign against Cromwell. And they tell Henry that he is plotting a rebellion against him. Um, our dear paranoid King Henry falls for it. He takes the bait and he approves an order to arrest Cromwell on tr charges of treason and heresy. 
Now, at this time, heresy as a sidebar, it's a really complicated thing, right? Because heresy can mean a couple different things. It can mean you're either not recognizing the king as like the supreme head of the Church of England. It can mean that you are adhering to the Catholic faith. faith. Um, but it can also mean that you're doing Protestantism too hard <laughs> and like doing it in a way that Henry didn't like. And we'll kind of circle back to that in a minute. But treason and heresy are the charges launched against Cromwell. He was taken to the Tower of London on June 10th, 1540. Um, given that he was the country's most <laughs> renowned and like popular lawyer, um, his enemies did not even bother like pretending that they were going to give him a trial. They literally didn't. Um, instead, they persuaded Henry to bring what's called a bill of attainder in front of Parliament. This is a piece of legislation. If you Google it, it just says it declares a party guilty of a crime. So there you have it. They just said, hey, you think you did treason, right? Right, Henry? Why don't you just say that and we'll be done? <laughs> I can't believe I Yeah. So the bill was passed in late June by Parliament. What else were they going to do? And Cromwell was condemned to die. So death without a trial. His only chance of survival, and like, I don't know why people keep trying this. I guess it worked sometimes, or like it worked when Henry was a young king. Um, but basically, you would try and persuade the king to pardon you at the last minute. And so that's what Cromwell did. He wrote impassioned letters from the Tower of London. The last of these ended with a very, very desperate, like, closing paragraph. He said, quote, Written at the Tower this Wednesday, the last of June, with the heavy heart and trembling hand of your highness's most heavy and most miserable prisoner and poor slave. And then he adds like a postscript right way down at the bottom of the page. He signs it. Most gracious prince, I cry for mercy, mercy, mercy. Um, no dice that that didn't work. Uh, Cromwell was executed on July 28th, 1540. And if you're listening to this on drop day, of this episode, that's tomorrow. I did not realize that this would be happening when I planned this, but um, how's that for serendipity? This happens sometimes when we record and I, I kind of enjoy it when it does. Legend does say that it took three blows of the ax um, by, by the quote, ragged and butcherly executioner to sever Cromwell's head. Although other accounts do say that his head came off cleanly in one swing. So like, I guess you can believe what you want here. But yeah, that's it for Thomas Cromwell, another one of Henry VIII's <laughs> right-hand men to just, yeah, not good. I don't like my odds if I'm a man at the Tudor court. I really don't. Now, let's return our discussion to Cromwell's Book of Hours and what it may have symbolized in its portrait, or rather, what people want to see in it in his portrait. So Cromwell has gone down in history as being like the architect of the English Reformation. He is known for his commitment to carrying out Henry VIII's religious reforms. And he was like the legal mastermind behind them and implementing them in every aspect of England's like religious life, in their political life, and in English people's social lives. Um, and it kind of seems like his religious convictions were not just for show. Cromwell personally paid for the translation of the Bible into English so that all of Henry's subjects had ready access to it. He ordered in September 1538 that every parish purchase a copy of an English Bible rather than a Latin one, which most people couldn't read. Um, and that Bible was to be placed in, quote, some convenient place for all to see and read. 
So to meet this demand, he commissioned what is known as the Great Bible um, and put it in, into production. So, okay, we have a man who is clearly very, very heavily devoted to the English Protestant Reformation. What is he doing with a Catholic prayer book in his portrait? And for that matter, what was Anne Boleyn doing owning one? First, let's remember that the English Reformation, I don't know if you covered this in history class, I think I did. The English Reformation was not based as much on issues of like, dogma as, say, the Protestant Reformation in Germany was. This was not Henry being moved by the spirit of, like, Martin Luther to turn his back on the Catholic Church because he disagreed with their teachings. No, his main issue was that of his own supremacy. He didn't really like having to take orders from the Catholic Pope. In fact, earlier in his reign, Henry had been awarded the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. <laughs> in recognition of a written defense of the Catholic Church against the threat of Martin Luther. Like, that's why today, even ironically, the British monarch still uses the title Defender of the Faith, although today that is supposed to reflect their uh, position as the Supreme Head of the Church of England. So they did a little flip-flop there. But yeah, in its original form, that meant he was defending the Catholic Church. Anyway, so for all of that, English Protestantism did reject like parts of Catholicism, particularly the parts that gave power and riches to the clergy and the church. Henry himself did remain pretty faithful, at least in my view and my reading, to the core beliefs taken out of like Catholicism as it existed as like the main form of Christianity at this time. He reformed some things, he made some things more accessible, but he did kind of remain staunchly like Catholic in a lot of his personal views. Kate McCaffrey, the woman who discovered these things with the books of hours, she points out in, I think it was a TikTok maybe or in a video interview, um, that to be interested in religious reform at this time meant that you were first and foremost interested in upholding Christianity. So there was this like common point of departure for everyone, regardless of whether you were calling yourself a Catholic or a Protestant. Like, the core beliefs were all pretty similar. It was these tiny issues of like, oh, should we read the Bible ourselves? Should we listen to a priest read it to us in Latin? Like those were the differences. So to a person looking at a portrait of Cromwell in that context of him as a religious reformer, the inclusion of the Book of Hours on the table could suggest that he is right there in step with Henry's religious convictions, hanging on to the tenets of Christianity, which are kind of inspiring this fervor because they think that they're doing all of this for the good of their people, right? They're doing all of this to uphold that relationship with God. Praying often and devotedly is something that would have been part of that. And it's something that Henry carried over from his Catholic beliefs. Um, a book of hours, therefore, wouldn't have really been out of place as part of that religious practice um, for Anne Boleyn, for Cromwell, or for Henry himself. Now, I think that's a plausible reading of this, but I don't think it's the correct one, because one thing about the Book of Hours in Cromwell's portrait by Holbein that is really not at all in step with Protestant ideals is its luxury. This is a sumptuous item as much as it is a spiritual one. And you might know that one of the things that Protestants rejected, like 
out of hand about the Catholic Church was the Catholic insistence on like having religious items be covered in gold. Like that's even a thing today. And I'm saying this as a Catholic person, um, encrusting chalices with jewels. You know, um, I think there's a Martin Luther line. I don't know if he really said it or if it's just from the movie about him. But he says he doesn't want to go to church and see his tax money glinting at the priest's elbows. And that's kind of a core Protestant belief. But it is the sumptuous binding of Cromwell's book that we are being directed to focus on in the portrait, not the religious content. This could be any book. The, the book itself, it's, it's closed and its clasps, which are covered in jewels, are fastened. It's not open on the table. Cromwell's not holding it in his hands so that we can see, you know, how pious he is, how godly he is. No, instead, what we're seeing is a display of his wealth. And we're seeing a display of his worldliness. I told you that the Book of Hours itself was printed in 1527 in Paris. The binding of Cromwell's copy was also crafted in Paris. This binding would have been made two years later, so he would have had to special order it. This was made in Paris between 1529, December 1529, and December 1530, and it was made for him by the metalsmith to the King of France. So, like, this is not a cheap item that now we know what he's doing with his $4.5 million a year. <laughs> and, you know, we're drawing our attention to the garnets in it, which might be a subtle reference once again to the fact that Cromwell is now being made the master of the king's jewel house. Whether this is an item that he had commissioned um, in, like, um, what's the word I want? Not in preparation, but, like, in expecting this role to come to him or whether the portrait is being painted to celebrate his promotion and he looks around and he says what do i have that can communicate like the core of this job to the public and he, he settles on this book i don't know i kind of like the second interpretation there so yeah i think what we're seeing here is a display of wealth that still lets Cromwell himself be seen as austere and serious. He himself is not decked out in jewels and different colors and like luxurious, ostentatious fabrics. But the priceless book is just on his work table for the world to see. And of course, those jeweled clasps are facing the viewer. On the Instagram, I do have a view of the real book compared to the one in the portrait. There's also a kind of detail view of both the book, like the page edges and the bound edge. Um, so you can really see the silver metalwork on it. It's just gorgeous. I love it so much. As I said, the book itself is on view at Hever Castle through November. Um, as for the painting of Cromwell, that is a victory for us Americans because it resides in the Frick Collection in New York. How did it get there? Well, I will try and paint you a picture. <laughs> um, just hours after Cromwell was taken to the tower during his arrest, soldiers arrived at his house to remove all of his belongings and take them to the treasury. We think that the Holbein portrait of Cromwell was among them, um, as it had been included in an earlier inventory of his London house. Um, we know of two paintings of Cromwell completed by Holbein. And this inventory contained a written note from one of his servants describing, quote, two tables or tableaus, probably, of my master, his namey or probably name, <laughs> painted. And both of these paintings did have Cromwell's name inscribed upon them. So this original Holbein 
was for a long time thought to have been destroyed or sold soon after Cromwell's fall. There is no record of it in any later inventory. And that kind of is in line with, with Henry just like scrubbing people he didn't like from the historical record. Um, as a traitor too, Thomas Cromwell's possessions would have been destroyed even by the crown. That is very likely. Or in the case of his land holdings, um, distributed among Henry's supporters or ex-wives that he needed to pay a settlement to. <laughs> Again, see the last art bite for more on that. So what we do have today for sure are copies of the Holbein portrait, um, an inventory of loans from the Countess of Caledon, Caledon, C-A-L-E-D-O-N. Some British person will correct me. Um, this countess loaned a bunch of stuff to a national portrait exhibition in 1866. And the inventory of items included in that loan mentions the very painting of Cromwell, which is now in the Frick collection. So that's like the first time that it resurfaces. I think even then it was assumed to be a copy. However, some historians today do believe that the Frick painting is the original Holbein, um, painted, you know, by him, by the man himself. That group is led by historian John Rowlands, who in the 1980s concluded the Holbein Providence because of X-ray photographs um, that were taken of the panel. So he thinks that the markings made by the artist are consistent with those made on paintings that we know Holbein actually completed himself. So. Like I said, not everyone buys this. There are still some that believe that the Frick painting is a copy because I think of the condition that it's in. Um, but there you go. Maybe that's the next Tudor mystery that will be like definitively solved. Who knows? But there you have it. If you are in the UK, go see this book of ours at um, Hever Castle. If you're in New York, I guess, go see the portrait of Cromwell at the Frick collection. Um, it's a, It's just a really exciting discovery. And like a great way to reintroduce these Tudor personalities into the current like cultural moment, introduce them to people who haven't maybe heard of them before. But like when you're able to say things like Henry VIII's two ex-wives and the architect of his reformation, who also had his head chopped off, all owned the same book when books were a really rare luxury item, like that gets people to pay attention. Um, and it's just such a reminder of like the importance of physical objects and the importance of caring for them to preserve like history and these stories. It's just, oh, it gives me a lot of feelings. Before I bid you adieu today, um, I do want to remind you that our next episode is going to be our first ever interview on Art of History. And I've given you a little bit of a teaser to the content today. Um, we are going to be talking a little bit more about illuminated manuscripts and medieval books on our next episode, um, but we are going to focus in on one author and one question mark artist in particular, um, and we're going to talk to an author who has written a novel about them. So I'm very excited for you to hear this. I hope you are too. Um, and just another episode format that we're adding to our arsenal, which I love. I love to see the show growing like this. Um, let me know your thoughts on the art bite format on topics that you would like to hear next on the show. Um, if you see any news tidbits that could be a future art bite, send them to me. Um, you can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. You can leave a comment or send me a DM on the Instagram at artofhistorypodcast. Oh, I didn't say this at the top of the episode, which makes me a terrible podcaster, but please 
do, if you are so inclined, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, send an episode to a friend if you think they would enjoy it. It really does help us get in front of future listeners, um, which also helps me just like make more and better content for you. So please, please, please. And thank you. <laughs> okay, I think that's going to do it for me today. Thank you ever so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one.